This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. Great to have you here with me today. Vision Zero has been part of the conversation in Toronto for nearly five years. It's actually a global campaign to make city streets safer by designing them in a way that reduces the severity of crashes and ultimately eliminates traffic deaths. It's not working in Toronto. Typically, we've had about 60 traffic deaths a year since Vision Zero and Vision Zero 2.0 were implemented. The only year it was less than that was in 2020, when most people were staying home because of COVID. Measures have been put in place to try to bring down the number of pedestrian and cyclist fatalities, but it seems they are not enough. Joining us to discuss outgoing Toronto City Councillor Mike Layton and Albert Cole, a cycling and pedestrian advocate and an environmental lawyer. Hello to you both. Good afternoon, Jane. Good afternoon, Jane. Mike, maybe you can give us a snapshot of all that's been done to try to reduce deaths on Toronto roads since you've been on council during this time. Well, I think we've what we've seen is some some really concrete steps towards uh, uh, towards Vision Zero on certain projects, but and and we've seen kind of the lofty goal of Vision Zero and of moving ahead with uh, our plan to reduce or improve infrastructure uh, at the city. But at, at every turn, what we're met with is a lack of enthusiasm to actually invest in these projects. And let me get, like, give you some examples. The, uh, the amount of time it's taken us to, uh, to, to roll out Toronto's bike plan, to make some of the smaller changes to corners uh, so that, that cars take them at a slower uh, rate of speed. It, they're, they're all, or, or many of them are linked to upgrades or replacements of roads. And the, the, the challenge there is that happens very slowly. We, we really, we, we had the right goal, but we haven't invested in it with the same enthusiasm as we did when we were launching the, uh, uh, when we were announcing what the goal was. And then on the other, like that's on the infrastructure side. We, we need to be rolling out the safer infrastructure faster. We also need to be looking at, uh, at, at rolling out better enforcement quicker. Like we know we, we've had success with our, um, uh, with our, both our red light cameras and our speed enforcement cameras. Um, most of the, that is regulated by the province, but we could be pushing a whole lot more at those real faster. And then the final piece on behavior, like we, we really continue to see just the, the, the behavior by, by, by drivers and really by politicians that are focusing more on the needs of people in cars than on the needs of pedestrians. We're all pedestrians at one point in the day of pedestrians that use micromobility. Um, so they're all areas that we do need improvement. We have seen uh, the rollout of some of the infrastructure pieces, but it certainly hasn't been as fast well, as I, I think uh, most people would want. Right. Uh, ironically, though, Mike, uh, the pandemic helped push forward uh, some of these measures to at least change the culture in the city where uh, bike lanes were implemented, allowing people to not have to take public transit with other people or be in cars with other people. So uh, there seemed to be a, a push during 2020 for that. Well, Albert knows this well. The first kilometer or two kilometers of the Bloor Street bike lane took three decades. 20 kilometers took pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so we, we have seen some cultural shift in that regard. But if you're out there on the streets when you're on a bike, and I'm on the bike with my kids constantly, uh, you, still, you still see that, that, that drivers on the road tend to take some liberties with respect to their speed, where they park. Uh, as well as how they take turns and how they behavior, uh, behave on the road. And we're seeing this across the city, uh, with, and it needs to stop. But it's not only that behavior. The city needs to be investing in the infrastructure and the enforcement as well. Albert, what are your thoughts on the city's approach to road safety over these past five years? The city is still dabbling around the edges. 
Uh, so I would say that the things that um, the city has done and that Mike has mentioned are positive uh, steps forward, but they're still not uh, dealing with the um, fundamental problem, and that's that our roads are dangerous. Our roads were built in the 50s and 60s, most of them built to a width that uh, uh, induced and encouraged speed. Now we're at a, at a point where we say, well, we don't want that speed and uh, flow of motor traffic as much as we did in the 50s and 60s, what we value today at a greater level is uh, human safety. And and so it, it is somewhat ironic that the, one of the biggest line items, or in fact the biggest line item in the Vision Zero um, budget is um, crossing guards. So there's no doubt that we want crossing guards, but at the same time it says to us, our streets are so dangerous that we need, children need an escort to get across the street. And in fact, it gets a bit worse than that because we know Parents are often saying, more often saying than they did uh, decades ago, that uh, I'm going to take my child to school, unlike Mike, who I know takes his uh, kids to, to a daycare or to school on his bike, but they take their kids to school in, you know, vehicles that mm-hmm. weigh upwards of 5,000 pounds in some cases to feel safe. So if we want to get to the fundamental problem, we do have to redesign roads. That means a commitment, but it also means a choice. So in the old days, we used to say, well, that's kind of a price we pay for a modern, fast-moving society. Today, I'd say the majority of Torontonians say we want safe roads, and that uh, takes a real commitment from City Hall. We haven't seen that yet. Let me put that uh, out to our listeners, our Zoomer radio listeners. If you live in the city of Toronto or whatever municipality you're in, what would you like to see improved in your neighbourhood so that the streets will feel safer for you as a pedestrian, especially if you're an older pedestrian? The numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about the lack of success around Vision Zero and the associated costs, uh, Councillor Layton, $200 million. We're not seeing the traffic fatality numbers come down annually. Is that money that has simply been wasted? I certainly don't think it would, has been wasted because I know I, that the improvements that have been done have saved lives and will continue to save lives as those infrastructure as that infrastructure continues to exist beyond their their completion date, I, I think that, uh, that 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 Albert's right. When we're looking at just uh, at, at the largest item being um, uh, being crossing guards, rather than being the complete redesign of some of our major roads that we know are hazardous uh, across the city, um, that, that that that's a, that's a, that's a mistake. We should be putting the necessary money in to drive that number uh, that number further down. So I don't. I certainly don't think it's a waste, but. I, I do think that there's some there's wasted opportunity as time goes by, and we haven't actually made that investment that we know uh, we need to make into our infrastructure to make it safer, because it's, it, Albert was right. It, it, it was designed at a time where they were prioritizing the speed and movement of cars. Mm-hmm. Um, our priorities have changed. And we need to start uh, focusing on that. Talking about speed, as recently as this morning, Albert Mayor Tory talked about how street by street they are going across the city and dealing with uh, speed limits, uh, presumably. You know, I think about the street that I live on in Etobicoke. It is a residential street. We have not been successful in trying to get speed bumps. So people can go 50K on our street. And typically, we see people going by at 60, 65, 70. 70 kilometers an hour on a street where a child could easily run out onto the roadway. Absolutely. And that's why, I mean, first of all, I'd say, you know, we're we're happy with the uh, speed limit decreases. We're happy with the uh, speed cameras. Those were things that road safety advocates demanded from government and that were put in place. But the next step is the harder one because it costs a lot more. So, So what you're talking about the, the message that the roads are still sending in many cases is go fast. And that's, that's the signal that drivers are getting. So if we think back, uh, like it's not an easy step because in the 50s and 60s, for example, we built the, the DBP, the 401, the Gardner, all of those expressways and widened roads cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And now we're, we're saying, well, we're going to try to change that. But the, the investment is still more or less a drop in the bucket. The ca- um, you know, capital funding to change roads is about $25 million a year. Mm-hmm. Well, if you compare that to the hundreds of millions we've invested in big, fast roads, it's going to take 
a bigger commitment. It's going to take political will, and it's going to take money. I'm speaking with Albert Cole, lawyer Albert Cole, cycling and pedestrian advocate, and city councillor Mike Layton. We have some calls. I, I figured this would be a hot-button topic. Again, the numbers are 416-360-0740. We're talking about road safety in Toronto and how to improve it and bring the number of fatalities down. Toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's go to Al is calling us from Hamilton. Hi, Al. Yes, sir. Go yes, ahead. Ma'am. Pardon me. <laughs> Go ahead. When I was a young fellow, went down to the X. We took the, the bus into the Grey Coach to the terminal, got out, went up Bay Street, and went across, and cops, the cop and a cruiser jumped out and come over, and we each got a $10 ticket for jaywalking. That was 1962 or three. From that time till now, I spent 40 years in the city, and jaywalking has been such a problem you worry about your brakes stopping for people on bicycles that aren't obeying lights stop signs nothing and the people that are jaywalking there's no penalty so they don't they're fearless Al, thank you. Mr. Layton will disagree with me on that one well you know what personal responsibility does play into it doesn't it uh, Mike well I think I would argue that while while I haven't seen anyone get a ticket for jaywalking anytime recently there are People are ticketed for for cycling dangerously when they're not observing the rules. But but I would I would put to you that it's not cyclists that are driving up the killed and seriously injured individuals in our city. It's in fact more people driving too fast in cars. And yes, um, there there like there is some notion of personal safety, but the city has a duty to design a city that reduces the number of deaths, regardless of if you choose to, to jaywalk or not. I wouldn't say that it's not also drivers jaywalking, parking on the street and then walking across the street uh, to to go to their uh, to, to to go to whatever store that they're looking to get into because it was the easiest parking spot they found. Uh, but I would say they deserve just as much protection as someone that's walking their uh, their their daughter to to their dance class. Right. Let's um, go. Sure. So I would just I, I would just say that yes, there there are those that don't follow the rules, but I would suggest to the caller that it's in fact follow the rules that actually are the cause of many of the killed and serious injuries. And and part of that is us designing roads so that they do need to drive, drive slower. And I do want to speak with you both as well about cities in the world where Vision Zero has been successful. Let's first go to Kate in Toronto. Kate, you're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you. I just want to talk about the lack of enforcement. I'm a PSW who uses my bike to get around, and I have a huge catchment area. I took over 500 photographs last year of cars parked in the cycling lanes, and I continue to do that this year. Who cares but me and other cyclists? Why should we have to veer into traffic because somebody is too lazy to move a few meters ahead with their car on all the parking spots along the Danforth? Yeah, Kate, I've heard that, and Albert, I'm sure you witnessed that firsthand. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it is a problem that could be solved with good road design, for example. So we know that the bike lanes that work best and are safest for everyone are the ones that have a physical barrier. So, so there is a good example that the callers mentioned about where physical design would make a difference. Yeah, we can't seem to convince them motorists to stay out of bike lanes, but a physical design um, that uh, offers a barrier that would solve the problem. One of our regulars, Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. What would you like to add? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Ian. For pedestrian safety, the timing to cross the road should increase so people don't have to rush because the roads are getting wider. So are they changing the time to keep up with that? That A great question. And it does become an issue, doesn't it, Mike, uh, Councillor Layton, uh, for older people to cross the streets. And in fact, that was a big push in, at the beginning of Vision Zero as well, creating these senior safety zones. Well, yes, the senior safety zone, safety zones around schools, this is places where there's a lot of vulnerable individuals that are crossing the road. Um, I would say that, yes, we should be we, we should be looking to make sure there's enough time. Um, but also to the caller's uh, point, we shouldn't be looking at widening roads. Uh, we should be doing the exact opposite to Albert's point, where we should be redesigning roads that are actually um, better for people uh, to be 
to be walking and cycling or, or, or taking a different form of um, active transportation or micromobility uh, and making it safe for them. And you do that by narrowing lanes. So the cars, tend, they tend to go a little bit slower mm-hmm. in narrow, narrower lanes because there's some fear that you're going to hit the, 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 um, the, the vehicle beside you. But those, the, that narrowing of the lanes uh, really does help us manage speed uh, better. We're looking to do that on Avenue Road, where we've got a, a an, en- an enormous right of way that's actually been increased to accommodate cars and move them faster. Um, but now we've put a lot of condos in that area because there's there's for a number of reasons there's good trans- transit access and there's jobs not far away. It's good for the environment, um, good for city building. Uh, but what we need to do is make sure that the sidewalks are there and the capacity of the sidewalks are. So that people can actually get out of their building and get to where they need to go. You mentioned Avenue Road, uh, um, Albert. When you think about the city, I'm thinking maybe the Danforth is a good example uh, through the pandemic and the changing of the way the street looks there as uh, the way that we want to transition some of our major arteries. Yeah, absolutely, and it's fundamentally a, a reallocation of space. So we, I think. What the city is, you know, the city is moving in the right direction, but when push comes to shove, when it comes to reallocation, we know that's where the fights are, right? Because if you take a, a lane of motor traffic away and dedicate it to a wider sidewalk or a bike lane, then we get the big fights. So that's where the political will has to come in. Like, we know how to do these things, and, and it requires reallocation of space. That's where the big fights are. That's where the choice is. And uh, I'd say the majority of Torontonians have made that choice. They want uh, safer roads, but we're still getting into those fights. We've got to have fewer of them and move forward. Jim in Toronto, you would like to add something to the conversation. Go ahead. Hey, appreciate the show. Again, I've heard you've had this topic before, and it's always the same rhetoric with your guests on. They they, they demonize drivers and they don't uh, take responsibility that pedestrians have to realize they're right away also. And I think pedestrians, a lot of times, I'm out there all the time, they do not use critical thinking. All they hear is pedestrians have right away, and they do not cross the street properly. And in terms of slowness and wideness, it says in the highway traffic, you cross the street briskly and safely. And I see people on cell phones, and they're, it's like they're in their living room. And they're talking and trying to cross the street. And all they have, I know their mindset out there. I'm out there teaching all the time. All they think is, it's my right away. There's no critical thinking when they cross the street. Your first follow, when he talked about the 50s and the 60s, we were taught to look both ways and use critical thinking and use our part, too. There's two-way street. You have to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Okay. You have to have good drivers, good pedestrians. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for the call. And that's sort of a perfect transition point to ask you both about cities in the world where Vision Zero has been successful and pedestrians, cyclists, and motorists are living in harmony and respectfully. Uh, Mike Layton. Well, I think you see, like in particular, as a result of COVID, you, we we saw some of the major cities in the world take uh, uh, or make pledges, at least, to 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 take serious steps to pedestrianize spaces, to to make it safer for uh, for for cyclists, while continuing to allow access to their the core of their city. Um, we saw Paris, we saw Montreal made so, some some recent steps. But then you look at what, what happens when you start making those changes. We always hear, well, well, people aren't going to start cycling, they're not going to get around in this, that, or the other way. But you look at major cities like Copenhagen and Amsterdam around the world who started on this uh, down this road um, uh, many years ago, decades ago, and in fact, we see an enormous shift in the mode share uh, of travel with people getting around on different means of transportation. Uh, we just need to make those commitments, the long-term goals, we need to make the investments necessary. Uh, I, I would just add to the, to, to the last caller, everyone's a pedestrian. Everyone's a pedestrian at some point. And the fact that they're walking across the street, perhaps using their telephone, uh, is, is one thing. People do have to have personal responsibility. But I'll ask you a question. Do you ever see a driver on a phone? Yes, we yes. do regularly. Yes. All of us see them. They're on their, they're on their phones uh, as well. I wouldn't say all, just like I wouldn't say all pedestrians are on their cell phones when they're crossing the street and, and getting injured by uh, by cars. Um, I also wouldn't suggest from what a previous caller said that, that all cyclists aren't following every rule all the time, but certainly drivers aren't, and they're in two tons of metal 
barreling down at 50 miles plus an hour. Um, tell us, tell me who the real problem is here. Well, and Albert, uh, in terms of that respectful use of the roadways and the sidewalks, uh, Mike mentioned Amsterdam, Copenhagen. How have those places gotten there and gotten that culture shift to happen? Yeah, well, there's another city we haven't talked about. I mean, in 2019, Oslo had uh, zero uh, pedestrian and cyclist uh, fatalities. So I don't think we need any more to take lessons from other cities What because we, mm-hmm. we know what the solutions are, and we've talked about some of them here. Uh, so, so the first thing is, I mean, focus on road design. And, and to your caller's point, the point isn't that, you know, drivers are any different from people who ride bikes or people who walk. All of them will make mistakes. The, the difference is that um, the motor car, given its weight, size, and the power, is more likely to do damage. So it's not a question of blaming sort of people on foot or, or even suggesting that they are different. Each will, you know, take advantage of whatever sort of uh, rules they, you know, what they can get away with. But the point is, uh, if I as a cyclist or I as a pedestrian make make a mistake, I, I'm not going to be running over someone and killing them. The, the, the motor car inherently has those uh, dangers. And that's really fundamentally what we're trying to address is to say, we all make mistakes. We're not, you know, saying one group is more blameworthy in terms of their own personal conduct. But what we do know is um, what is causing deaths. And so once we recognize that, we say, well, when you do make a mistake, we can all agree that that mistake should not be a death sentence. And that's why we're talking about redesigning roads so they induce lower speeds, so that they protect people on bikes and on sidewalks with things like wider sidewalks and bike lanes. So we know the solutions. Mm-hmm. We have some good um, you know, examples from other cities, but those examples are mostly about commitment to action. All right. We need to wrap it up there. Uh, It's a good time to look into uh, the different ideas that your city councillor candidates are putting forth. If road safety is important to you, we do have a municipal election coming up on October 24th. Mike and Albert, thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Toronto City Councillor Mike Layton, outgoing, and Albert Cole, a cycling and pedestrian advocate and environmental lawyer. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up next, speaking of the municipal election, is it time to build a bridge to the Toronto Islands? A candidate for Toronto City Council thinks so and joins us next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Well, on the surface, it sounds like a good idea to me. See what you think. Toronto City Council candidate April Engelberg is proposing a lift bridge that would connect Toronto's Portlands to the Toronto Islands. What do you think? Is it time to access the islands without having to travel on the water by ferry or water taxi? Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. April Engelberg is running for City Council in Spadina, Fort York, and she joins us now on Fight Back. April, you're getting some attention. Good morning. Actually, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, I, I think there's a great reception to the idea of building a pedestrian cycling lift bridge to the island. Well, bring us up to speed on your idea, how you came to think about it, and now how you are proposing it as a candidate for council. Definitely. So all we, we all know that the current ferry system, it's slow and it's expensive. And a lot of my neighbors were pushing me saying, look, this is our ward's largest public park. It should be free for everybody to access. So I thought a lot about how to make that happen. And there were several people that were recently writing articles and tweets about their frustrations with access to the island. And I looked at a map and consulted with people and realized this is the safest and most practical way to build a bridge there because the Eastern Channel is only 250 meters um, from it's only between the Portlands and Wards Island. Right. So it's very feasible here. And the idea is that it's a pedestrian and cyclist bridge, not a vehicular traffic bridge. Exactly. No cars. 
So now, why has this not happened already, do you think, when, when you got researching the idea? Um, has, this, has this been a proposal in the past and obviously wasn't successful? I think previous discussions were about how to get to the other side of the island where where the airport is. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much we've, debate we've had from this location. And it's also important to note that where the bridge would start at the Portland is a very underutilized industrial area. So we could actually have a lot of development right by the bridge location at the Portland. Development, you mean uh, buildings or park space or a combination? Both. 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 Yeah. It's very underutilized. And in terms of large vessels coming through, that's when the lift bridge portion of what you're talking about kicks in. Exactly. So we get about one to two large cargo ships each week. Um, So the bridge would need to lift to let them through. Let's talk about the cost for this and how feasible it is while we're in an economic recovery. Definitely. So we recently got four different bridges in the area, um, and we use that as an estimate, as well as this similar bridge in Manchester. And we had estimated 10 to 15 million. It might be more. It might be closer to 30 million. In any event, it's would be split likely between the city, the province, and the federal government. And this would cost us a fraction of what we would have been paying for Rail Deck Park, for example, um, which was the proposed park covering the rail tracks from Bathurst to Blue Jays Way in our ward. So what kind of reception have you received? Uh, An incredible reception. Very, very positive. Um, Even though we only announced yesterday, I'd been talking to constituents about this for the last week and It is a 10 out of 10 idea, I have to say. People are thrilled about it. To keep in mind, Spadina, Fort York, we don't have a backyard. We like to say we're a ward without a backyard, right? 94% of us don't have a backyard. We're mostly condo dwellers, incredibly dense area. So this is a ward that, sorry, this is a massive public park, about 20 times the size of Trinity Bellwoods Park, um, that's owned by the city. So we should use it to make it free for everybody to access. Right. Uh, so presumably, I mean, that's still quite a bike ride to get from the ward of Spadina, Fort York, over to the Portlands, though. Um, not really, actually. Okay. It, 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 to get to the island from the ferry terminal, for example, it's 15 minutes. But if, if you're living on the water around there, it could be about a 12, 10-minute bike ride. Okay, just to go from Spadina, Fort York, around to the Portlands and then crossing over. Definitely. And we would obviously need to improve the biking infrastructure at okay. Portland to make this better. Now, do you want to get rid of the ferries or just have the bridge augment the ferry system? So there's definitely still a place for the ferries, and I would leave that for the consultation with the island residents because obviously they rely on the ferries to live their life. Um, so not advocating to completely get rid of the ferries, and I would say we'll leave that for consultation. Well, now, there are 12 candidates for councillor in Ward 10, Spadina, Fort York. Uh, Joe Mahevic has been taking care of the seat since uh, it was vacated by Joe Cressy. It sounds like it's anyone's election. Yeah, and I came in second place to councillor Cressy in 2018. I was originally not running against him, but as you might recall, the wards were cut from 47 to 25. Um, there was originally no incumbent in my race, but then I had to run against uh, Joe Cressy, and I came in second place. So this time I'm I'm hoping to win. Well, April Engelberg, um, what other ideas do you have? <laughs> okay, great question. Lots of other things. So a big thing in our ward besides parks is we're getting three new subway stations. We're getting um, three Ontario line subway stations, Queen and Spadina, King and Bathurst, and Exhibition Place. And I'm thrilled about this. The same way that this election, I'm advocating for a big idea, that being the the island bridge. Last time, in 2018, I was the only candidate advocating to build the then-called downtown subway relief line west of university. Because if you recall, at the time, it actually ended at Osgood Station. So I was advocating to keep it going west because we're the fastest-growing ward, King Street could the, street, the King Streetcar could not keep up with us. In fact, the King Streetcar has more riders than several subway lines. Um, so now that we're actually getting the Ontario line, and I'm thrilled about this, um, it's going to be about planning around this. We obviously don't want our ward to become a complete construction zone 
with um, businesses suffering like it happened along Eglinton with the LRT. So planning around to make sure that all the businesses are still accessible, that the streetcars are still running, the bike lanes are still safe, traffic is moving, et cetera, because we have a huge construction project coming our way. Well, we appreciate you joining us on Fight Back today. It's great to hear a passionate candidate for Toronto City Council with some new ideas. All all the very best to you. Thank you so much. April Engelberg is one of 12 candidates for councillor in Ward 10, Spadina, Fort York, for the October 24th municipal election. It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up in the final segment today, where we're at in the fight against bladder cancer. We discuss with two experts next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back tomorrow. Well, it is a cause near and dear to my heart, the fight against bladder cancer. If you're a new listener to Zoomer Radio... I've been an advocate for Bladder Cancer Canada in memory of my mom, Sandy, since 2015. Mom died in 2012 after three years of treatment for bladder cancer, including bladder removal. But much has changed since then. Much-needed research and personalized cancer treatments are saving lives. And the annual Bladder Cancer Walks are helping to fund research and patient support. The Toronto Walk is coming up on Saturday, September 24th. And for the eighth year, my team is looking for your support. More about that later. Joining me to talk about bladder cancer research and treatment Treatments and all that Bladder Cancer Canada offers to patients. Bladder cancer survivor Tony Kornakia, Chair and VP of Bladder Cancer Canada, and Dr. Alexander Zlata, Director of Euro Oncology at Mount Sinai Hospital, Professor in the Department of Surgery Urology at the University of Toronto, and a member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board. Hello to you both. Hello. Jane, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Dr. Zlata, I will start with you. It is that time of year when we are talking about bladder cancer. We do in May as well during Awareness Month. Talk with us about some of the advances that have been made recently in bladder cancer research and treatment. Well, I think, you know, uh, things are advancing uh, fast. There's going to be a uh, really big meeting this uh, this weekend in Paris, actually, which is the ESMO, where a lot of researchers will present their, their new findings. What, what we have observed is that, you know, in the past, especially when the disease was aggressive and required the bladder removal because the bladder went into the muscle, uh, we have seen now a trend towards what's called bladder sparing, where for some patients w- with specific kinds of features, you can actually combine the resection, uh, endoscopy resection of the tumor with chemoradiation and achieve similar results. And what we've seen recently is even complete bladder sparing, where uh, people receive systemic treatment, killing cells, Everywhere, you have the enemy that you see inside the bladder, but you have often the enemy that you don't see hiding somewhere. And when patients have complete response where the CAT scan, the cystoscopy shows the disappearance of any any disease after the systemic treatment, there is, according to the biology and to the uh, genetic footprint of these tumors, uh, studies where nothing else is even done, which is truly, truly sparing. So we've moved from the most aggressive of the bladder removal, which, as you know, and you know this uh, firsthand, is a very debilitating uh, surgery for many, to a uh, tailored, personalized treatment where some patients will receive one kind of treatment but will completely re- keep their bladders. And that truly is a big, big trend. Oh, it really is. I mean, this is not something we were even talking about three or four years ago. Tony, how many years have you now been bladder cancer free? And uh, for those of us who didn't hear you on with me back in May, uh, talk to us about your journey. Um, so I've, I've no evidence of disease since uh, early 2017. So, uh, so five years for me. 
Um, I was originally diagnosed in 2014 with uh, non-muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer. Uh, and then over the course of the following two years from that point, uh, four surgeries, uh, some treatments that didn't go very well. Uh, my cancer had spread to the lymph nodes uh, by the fall of 2016. Sorry, I was cancer-free from 2018. So um, I, I benefited from some of the novel treatments. Uh, I was a part of a, an immunotherapy clinical trial by the end of 2016 and, and showed a complete response to that uh, over the following year. So, so again, from early 2018, uh, I've shown a complete response. And as Dr. Zalata alluded to, no sign of cancer on my CAT scans. Uh, and my cystoscopies. That is amazing. very, very lucky. Yes, congratulations. Dr. Zlata, how common is it uh, for people like Tony who've had their cancer spread outside their bladder to be surviving bladder cancer, to be cancer-free for a a number of years? Thanks, God. I would say more and more common. We wish that basically we could say that of every single patient, but unfortunately we're not there yet. But I think what uh, Tony uh, exemplifies is that a continuous better understanding of the disease with the help of Bladder Cancer Canada, with all the funding, all, all the research, ends up translating into real, substantial, visible improvements for patients. We have been, you know, we first, a couple of years ago, had only chemotherapy and not everyone was, was responding. Then we could salvage people uh, and patients who were not responding to chemotherapy with what we called immune checkpoint in inhibitors that were redirecting our, um, our white blood cells to recognize tumor cells and to kill them. And then with a better understanding of the biology of the nasty tumors, we can really specifically target them. And for instance, even in patients who have not unfortunately responded to chemotherapy, who have not even responded to the new immune, respo- immune uh, checkpoint inhib- inhibitors, there are new drugs like enfortumab vidotin or EV, uh, which is the nickname that everyone knows, who still can be completely salvaged and for a long period of time. And so uh, it's really amazing. It's tremendous. I do expect that with better understanding of the biology, we're going to get even better drugs. And I, I really think that it's an exciting time for all of us. Oh, yeah. I love that when we talk now, it's mostly good news. And if you missed the intro to this segment, Dr. Alexander Zlata is a world-renowned uro-oncologist. If you are a bladder cancer patient yourself or you have a loved one who has bladder cancer and you like to call in and ask a question, we invite you to do so. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Zlata, you and I have been talking about this for years. The main symptom of bladder cancer is blood in the urine. How important is it to see a urologist if you have this symptom? I would say it's very, very important. And, and maybe, you know, we can ask Tony how he, he presented and how things were, went, went for him. Over to you, Tony. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Blood in the urine was the telltale sign uh, symptom for me. Um, uh, uh, went to the doctor and, and, and um, had a urine test and they suspected something funny, and then I was referred to uh, to a urologist who then confirmed uh, that it was indeed bladder cancer. So it is very important uh, any sign any sign of blood in the urine to make sure you get it checked out. Uh, and the earlier you get it diagnosed, the better chances are of, of beating the disease. And Tony, in your experience, it's okay to push your family doctor to send you to a urologist to a specialist if you do have blood in your urine. It is very important and absolutely acceptable. Uh, we've got to be our own advocates, um, and it is very important to push the doctor to make that referral if he's not doing that uh, for you. And I would say, you know, 
um, I just spoke with a young patient, and basically this person has been bleeding on and off for one full year, and for what the reason was kind of dismissing, you know, you think things are going to be better, I think. And, and of course, when you, you diagnose them, it's later, and I think it's so important to, you see blood, you just consult. Right. And in the case, I mean, this bladder cancer is more prominent in men than it is in women. And oftentimes, Dr. Zlata, that's why, at least in the past, when women presented with blood in their urine, the first instinct of the family doc was not to send them to a specialist. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I think, you know, um, women are a little bit more prone for obvious anatomical reasons to have recurrent urinary tract infections. And too often, you know, people just assume, assume that the blood is related to an infection. But I think, you know, you can't, especially if you have repeated infections, you just can't dismiss that. And you have to get to the bottom and just make sure that nothing is causing this. And sometimes, unfortunately, of course, it's, it is a tumor. You know, my mom would still still be here, and Dr. Zlata, you know this because you treated my mom, but by that time, uh, very likely the cancer had metastasized, even though she had her bladder removed. But this was quite typical 10-plus years ago where a family doctor would say to a woman, uh, it's likely a UTI, as you were just uh, commenting there, we'll give you antibiotics, the blood clears up for a little bit, it comes back, and you get into this repeated cycle of antibiotics. So as a woman, and it's really important if you have blood in your urine. Don't take no for an answer. Uh, say to your family, Doc, listen, I just want to rule out bladder cancer. So please, if you can send me to a urologist. And that way, uh, presumably, Dr. Zlata, if you catch it early, the survival rate is really high. Like any disease, uh, any cancer, of course, the earlier you catch it, the more superficial and non-invasive, the better the outcomes. When the disease is captured as what I call the pussycat level and, you know, very superficial in the lining and without really the propensity to get deeper, the survival can be as high as 99%. Unfortunately, if you wait and the disease has gone to the muscle or even beyond, uh, unfortunately, even nowadays, uh, the survival may drop by 30 to 40%, so 60% for the muscle invasive. And so that's why it's so important to pick it up as early as possible. Let's go to the phones now. We have some Zoomer radio listeners who want to be part of the conversation. The number is to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Pat in Scarborough, welcome to Fight Back. Uh, what would you like to share? Uh, good afternoon. Um, I've been going to call in for for actually a number of years now because I am a long-term survivor. I had bladder cancer uh, back in 94. And uh, anyway, I had my bladder removed, and uh, my treatment was strictly um, chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. Very, very aggressive chemotherapy, I must say. And I had that for six months. And after that, I didn't have any problem whatsoever with my um, bladder up until now. And what's happening now? Well, actually, uh, I had two other kinds of cancer since then. I had, um, I had uh, breast cancer and lung cancer mm-hmm. and, uh, in 2007 and 2009. And uh, then everything went along very fine, and I had my operations and everything. And, and then um, now, uh, around the end of February, I had just turned 80. And uh, I wasn't feeling well, and I, I sent an email, actually, to my doctor and said, I don't feel well. So he sent me for tests, and uh, in actual fact, the cancer had spread uh, quite badly into, uh, I guess, into my lungs, into my uh, chest, into my, into my everything, <laughs> that kind of thing. So anyway, so that's what I'm uh, uh, battling at the moment with uh, not have having made a decision not to uh, to take treatment again. You are not going to. No. 
Uh, but you've survived three types of cancer. Have the doctors, have they been able to determine what kind of cancer it is that spread to, to other parts of your body? No. Uh, now, I could have chosen to uh, have tests done so that they could determine, but, uh, uh, or I could just drift along and, and be on palliative care right. and uh, leave it at that. And um, really, you know, they said, well, if you go in the hospital, if you're going to have treatment, you'll be in and under the, out of the hospital and you will, uh, you know, not have, not a joyous time kind of thing. Not quality of life, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and Pat, it sounds like you're at peace with your decision. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Is, is there anything you'd like to ask Dr. Zlata? Well, you know, I just think I had wonderful treatment, and and uh, and so I don't uh, know anyone. Uh, the the, the um, treatment was extremely aggressive, and uh, and I was told that by my doctor and uh, by the oncologist, and he said, you know, it's not going to be easy on you if you want to be uh, cured of this cancer. So I said, I'll I'll hang in there, right. and I did, and and uh, boy, it really worked for an awful long time. It did work for a long time. Thank you for calling in, Pat, and and sharing your story. All the best to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Dr. Zlata, that's quite a story, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's it's quite a story, but it's also somehow bringing some optimism in in the sense that the especially for smokers, um, the odds of having lung cancer are higher than than bladder cancer. And what has happened, actually one out of uh, seven person will are are at risk of having lung cancer when you're a heavy smoker. And what means is that in the past, because the outcomes of bladder cancer were suboptimal to say the least, and you're best placed than anyone to, to realize that, people did not even have the time to develop a cancer that was more prevalent, like lung, and although it was, might have been caused by the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now, with people surviving 25 years, they are now indeed presenting with secondary cancers, whether uh, ENT cancers, whether you know, lung cancers, um, sometimes as well, a cancer in the lining that comes from the bladder, from the, the, sorry, from the kidneys down to the bladder, because the ureter that connects the kidney to the bladder has exactly the same line is the bladder, so what has affected the bladder can also affect what we call the upper tract. And so we're facing more and more, and we're really cognizant that the survivors on the long run have survived bladder cancer, and that's amazing, but are still at risk of developing other type of cancer related to the, the first cause, and that's why we need monitoring and, and scrutiny. Right. I want to go back over to Tony Kornakia, Chair and VP of Bladder Cancer Canada, just in the interest of time. Tony, this year's walk, the Bladder Cancer Walk, which is being held in communities right across Ontario and the country, uh, including here in Toronto, is resuming with the community for the first time since 2019, since before the pandemic. How big of a deal is this for the bladder cancer community? We are really excited that it is back uh, in live events. Uh, we're, We're holding walks and 29 communities across the country, uh, you know, and if you're uncomfortable to join one of those walks, you have the, the uh, option of walking where you are uh, in your own community. So it is exciting to get back together again and kind of resume some normalcy. Um, and it is our 12th annual walk. Uh, we've raised um, some, some good funding for research. We've, over the years, have funded almost $3 million in bladder cancer research that goes to, you know, a lot of the new treatments that Dr. Zalada is talking about. So it's, it's an exciting time all around for us. And uh, bladder cancer is, is one of those cancers that is way down the list for funding, and that's why the walks are all that much more important. Yeah, you know, given that it's the fifth most common cancer, funding is uh, almost 19th or 20th. Uh, so there is a huge disconnect between how common the cancer is and the funding that it gets. Uh, that makes our funding and our fundraising even that much more important for the cause. And, and I understand that Bladder Cancer Canada is growing, but it is still basically a volunteer organization. And, you know, when people are deciding to what charities they want to give, 
uh, they can feel confident that most of the money, the vast majority of the money that they give will go to the cause, right? We pride ourselves on, uh, you know, being uh, very lean and offering uh, all the patient support that we can. And, and we, we, we are very, uh, you know, the goal is to uh, fund as much as we can and, and, you know, not spend a lot of the money on the administration side like some other um, charities do. So we're very proud of that. And one of the pieces we haven't really focused on here is the support that is offered by Bladder Cancer Canada to patients when they are going through treatment. Talk with us about that. Yeah, so one of our most popular programs is our peer-to-peer support. Um, So if you call into Bladder Cancer Canada and have some questions, um, we will uh, try and connect you to a patient that has some very similar um, uh, circumstances to you. Not every can every you know every cancer case is very different, um, but if you're if you're if you've got non-muscle invasive uh, bladder cancer, we will try and pair you up with somebody that has non-muscle invasive, but, and it just makes that conversation a little easier because there's more in common, and um, you, you know we find that 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 one-to-one support from a patient that has experienced what you're going through. Uh, is very helpful for patients that are newly diagnosed. And information uh, is on the Bladder Cancer Canada website, yes? It is. It's all there. Bladdercancercanada.org. And if you, um, would, if you would like to donate to the walk, and in particular, I'd be honoured if you would put your money towards my team, uh, the place to go is bccwalk.ca, or you can, in my case, go to zoomerradio.ca and find out how to donate, how to get more information. Uh, Dr. Zlata, Tony, I'm really looking forward to seeing you guys at the walk at Sunnybrook Park on September 24th. It will be really nice to see you in person after three years. Dr. Zlata, Absolutely. Just a minute left here. Uh, any final thoughts before we say goodbye? Yeah, I know. I think the work of Ladder Cancer Canada is truly amazing. I think the awareness is absolutely important in Canada. We can really offer, and we've shown that recently, exactly the same outcome of anywhere in the best centers in the world. The, the key point is to bring patients early enough so that the disease is curable. And so this awareness and the Bladder Cancer Canada work is of utmost importance. I thank you both for joining me, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks. We will be there. Thanks. Thank you, Jane. Bladder cancer survivor Tony Kornakia, Chair and VP of Bladder Cancer Canada, and Dr. Alexander Zlata, Director of Uro-Oncology at Mount Sinai, Professor in the Department of Surgery Urology at the University of Toronto, member of Bladder Cancer Canada's Medical Research Board, and just a really kind, empathetic, and nice person as well. Jane, for Libby, she returns tomorrow with the Tune Into the Town panel. Uh, In the meantime, the number one's at one with Eva D coming up shortly after Angus Gillespie and the news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.